You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Over the last six months, I have found myself thinking often about the increasing complexity of the world we live in. Now, that's, that's not a scientific statement. I'm not talking about all the intricate details of the universe that God has created. But I'm thinking more about how the world is rapidly changing socially and morally and politically. And of course, with ever-shortening news cycles and the ubiquitous nature of social media, I think many people, and I'm sure many of you, are feeling confused and disheartened and overwhelmed at times. So friends, I want us to consider this morning what God's word has to say to the weary and the confused believer. One of the great blessings and benefits of the word of God is how it offers us clarity in the midst of chaos. It it offers us strength when we feel weak It offers us hope when we are discouraged. It offers us a safe path when all we can see are pitfalls. Our country is on the cusp of a presidential election. Racial tensions are high. Social unrest is everywhere. The headlines are dominated by discouraging stories of deceit and dishonesty and deception. So brothers and sisters, what are we supposed to do? What is God calling us to do in the midst of this world at this time? Let me offer you two ways, two ways many Christians and Christian churches respond. Here's the first. When faced with the challenge of a world that is changing at breakneck speed, many Christians and Christian churches embrace what I would call cultural accommodation. They feel the pull to stay relevant. They don't want to be seen as strange or disconnected. They they don't want it to appear that they have their heads stuck in the sand. And, And in the end, they look at the prevailing values of the world And they want to downplay or remove any distinction between the world and the church or the believer and the unbeliever. That's one. Here's a second, very different response. When faced with the challenge of a world that is changing again at breakneck speed, many Christians and Christian churches embrace what I would call cultural separation. This group feels the pull to stay pure. They see the increasing moral demise and ethical compromise all around them, and they adopt a a sort of just hunker down and wait for the rapture approach. This group tends to adopt an an us-against-them mentality. The only safe way to live is to hide away and only ever spend time with people that look and act and think just like you do. Now, friends, I want to suggest that the primary impulse, the primary impulse behind those two approaches is generally good. 
the cultural accommodation group wants to make an impact in the world. I really believe that. In fact, for the believer in the believing church, there is a kind of relevance that is good. Likewise, the cultural separation group desires something good, the desire for holiness and to guard against worldliness. But this group ultimately fails to engage their neighbors in meaningful ways for the glory of Christ. So you probably figured out by now that both of these approaches are ultimately wrong and we need to work hard to avoid both of them. Brothers and sisters, the Bible sets before us a third and better way. Rather than cultural accommodation or cultural separation, we are called to the work of gospel transformation. Gospel transformation. Now, when I say gospel transformation, I'm trying to describe what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember again, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not explaining the way into the kingdom, but the way of the kingdom. The characteristics Jesus highlights in verses 3 through 11 of Matthew chapter 5, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, longing for righteousness, merciful, pure, peace-pursuing, persecuted, and rejoicing, all of these things are already true of those who belong to Christ, but the Sermon on the Mount calls all believers to continue walking in this way. In other words, in other words, every authentic follower of Jesus has been, listen, has been transformed by the gospel and is being transformed by the gospel and is now called to work in the world for gospel transformation. So, what does this look like? And what on earth does this have to do with navigating an increasingly complex world? Well, I want you to listen carefully to the following quote. Christians should be a dynamic counterculture in the world. It will not be enough for Christians to simply live as individuals. They must live as a particular kind of community. Christians are called to be an alternate city within every earthly city, an alternate human culture within every human culture to show how sex and money and power can be used in non-destructive ways, to show how classes and ethnicities who cannot get along outside of Christ can get along in him and to show how it is possible to produce art that brings hope rather than despair or sexual stimulation. Christians, listen carefully, Christians will not be attractive within our culture through power plays and coercion, but through sacrificial service and acts of gospel-motivated love to all people. Friends, there is a way for Christians and for Christian churches to be relevant. But it isn't through cultural accommodation, by downplaying what makes Christians distinct and different. And it's, it's not through cultural separation by having no meaningful interaction with unbelievers. No, it's through gospel transformation. To live in this world as one who is distinct 
but you're distinct in the ways we find laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. You stick out, not because you're obnoxious and judgmental and condemning, but you're distinct because you're poor in spirit and meek and merciful, and you don't crave worldly treasures, but God's righteousness. You're distinct because you, you move toward conflict, declaring the peace of Christ. And when you are persecuted for the sake of Jesus, you don't lash out in anger and violence, but you rejoice. This is why you stick out. This is the distinction. So brothers and sisters, do you believe? Do you believe that what I described just now is overwhelmingly true of Christians and Christian churches right now? Or do we have work to do? To repeat what I said earlier, when faced with the challenge of a world that is changing at breakneck speed, Christian, Christians and Christian churches must embrace God's call to gospel transformation. How? Okay, how? By living in the world and among unbelievers while also living in a distinctly Christian manner. By walking in the way of Jesus, outlined in the Beatitudes. When we do this, we will function as God designed us to function. So our text this morning offers us two powerful analogies. Two powerful analogies to help us understand the work of gospel transformation that God has called each of us to. The outline is really simple. Two points. You are salt. You are light. You are salt. You are light. Let me read our whole text, and then I'll circle back to verse 13. That's where we'll begin. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. First, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Theologian Craig Blomberg applies this verse simply and clearly when he writes, quote, Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. You see, salt's most basic function was that of a preservative. It would prevent food from becoming decayed and ultimately destroyed. So, so when we think of Salt, we primarily think about it as a kind of seasoning. But that's not, that's not primarily what we're talking about here. Remember, during New Testament times, there, there is no refrigeration. So the meat would be preserved through using large amounts of salt. 
And if you want to understand the exact science of this, then Google it, because I'm not the guy to explain it. But, but take a moment, take a moment to think carefully about what Jesus is saying here. We don't have to understand the intricacies of how this works to understand his point. Why does he use the analogy of salt? Why does he announce to his followers, you are salt? Well, friends, consider this. The effects of sin, the effects of sin are devastating, aren't they? When sin runs rampant in a society, it only causes pain, suffering, and ultimately destruction. Does God care about this? Does God care? Or does he sit back as a smug and disinterested despot smirking at the foolishness of his creation? Does God care enough to do something about all this evil and suffering? Does he care enough to intervene? Well, we we believe that he will finally and fully make everything sad come untrue at some point, right? But brothers and sisters, don't we also believe that God has already invaded time and space by sending his son? In fact, isn't that what we celebrate every week? And in particular, when we come to this table together, we celebrate that God acted decisively in Jesus Christ to begin the process of making everything new. God sent his son to redeem sinners. But when someone, I want you to get this, when someone is miraculously saved by grace, they are not immediately taken to heaven, right? No, in God's perfect plan, he has inaugurated his kingdom here on earth so that his people, citizens of his kingdom on earth, might do something. There's something for us to do. He has us here for a reason. One author put it this way. Jesus calls his disciples not only to preach the gospel, but to oppose corruption and prevent moral decay in their world. In other words, the job of Christians is not to observe the sin and devastation that runs seemingly unrestrained in our world and to think, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm safe from the coming judgment. And then to turn a blind eye, to give no thought to what it actually means to be salt. Why am I here? What does God want from me? What does it look like for you and for me to be engaged in pushing back the forces of evil in this world through the power of the resurrected Christ? What does that look like? D.A. Carson writes, implicitly, Jesus is saying that apart from his disciples, the world turns ever more rotten. Christians have the effect of delaying moral and spiritual decay. If their lives conform to the norms of the Beatitudes, they cannot help but be an influence for good in society. 
So could I ask you, brothers and sisters, to personalize this? Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that apart from Paul and Elaine and Tim and Stephanie and Micah and Sam and Sarah, the world will turn ever more rotten. To apply this corporately, Jesus is saying that the presence of Redeemer Bible Church has the effect of delaying moral and spiritual decay in Minnesota and in the world. To which I would respond, really? Is this really true? Not generally, but specifically. How are you, believing friend, how am I? How is Redeemer being salt? In reality, we ought to be able to say, we ought to be able to say that sin has made less progress in Minnetonka and the surrounding communities because of the influence of the lives of the members of Redeemer Bible Church. Does our existence, therefore, does our existence and interaction with the world around us have this positive kingdom effect? That's a question we have to answer. We have to answer the question because of the second part of verse 13. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Friends, here is Jesus' startling point. If salt is contaminated, if it's diluted, it will not have its preserving effect. So, so listen carefully. The, the gospel of the grace of God infuses hopeless sinners like you and me with a kind of redemptive saltiness. And there is a sense in which we can never have this taken away. But to follow Jesus' analogy here, salt cannot exercise its preserving effect if it does not come into contact with that which it can preserve, right? If there's no contact, there can't be any effect. So I don't want you to miss this. This is why I said what I did before. If you or we as a church embrace cultural accommodation or a cultural separation, you and we will fail to function as God intends. Cultural accommodation is like diluted and therefore ineffective salt. And cultural separation is like having good salt, but it's safe and sound in the corner cupboard, never to be actually used. Friends, in both cases, there is no meaningful contact. And if there is no contact there will be no redemptive effect. Charles Spurgeon wrote, you are active 
and are to affect others as the salt which operates and preserves. You are made on purpose. I love that. You are made on purpose to exert influence. And your master warns you that if your influence be not beneficial and good, you are like the salt that has lost its savor and is good for nothing. But to be trampled underfoot, you are expected, therefore, Spurgeon says, to influence others for good. So friends, are you salt? Not are you a Christian, but are you actually working in tangible ways to delay the moral and spiritual decay in your world? Are you active for the good of others and the glory of Jesus Christ? If so, how? Mom, mom who's homeschooling kids, you can be salt in your own home, investing every day in your children, trying to raise children who are courageous and love Jesus. This is what God's calling you to do. Don't, don't dismiss it. Small business owner, how are you being salt in the community that you love where everyone knows you? High school and college student, what does it look like for you to be salt on your campus or your team? Redeemer member, and let me ask you directly, if God, if God took you out of your job, or moved your family out of your neighborhood, spiritually speaking, what difference would it make? If God removed our church, if the doors of Redeemer closed for good, what impact would it have? For salt to do its job, there must be contact. But there must be contact between those who desperately need Jesus and those who are willing to live distinctly as disciples of Jesus. Jesus says first, you are salt. Now second, you are light. You are light. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If the key to understanding what it means to be salt is contact, then the key to understanding what it means to be light is contrast. In order to understand the full weight of Jesus' illustration here, you have to imagine a world without electricity without street lights or porch lights or even multiple lights in the same house. This is a world where there is a kind of darkness that is difficult for us to comprehend. Darkness that could only be described as total and blinding blackness. Now into this darkness, imagine the effect that even the smallest 
flickering flame would have. In fact, during times when our power goes out, I'm, I'm always amazed at how much light even one small candle gives off. Friends, this is the picture. In a world that is dominated by the darkness of sin and pain and destruction, even small, even small and seemingly insignificant acts of righteousness, of meekness and mercy and peacemaking can have a profound effect. Look at the text again and understand the illustration we're offered. A city set on a hill cannot, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christian churches and the redeemed sinners that make them up ought to shine with the radiance of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we are like... We are like a divinely lit up city set on a hill. And by God's grace, this light that you and I have been sovereignly given ought to cascade down the hill and spread throughout the countryside as each of us goes forward, torch in hand, bringing it into the darkness. The text warns us it warns us that we must not hide the light of the gospel, but we are commanded to let it shine. Verse 16, what? Before others. I was joking around with the worship team this morning, saying we should have planned to sing this little light of mine. Hide it under a bushel. Thank you, Kramer. Let's try it again, everybody. Hide it under a bushel. Oh. oh, you see that powerfully here, don't you? When you understand the picture, God has made us lights so that we will infiltrate our communities and with acts of meekness and mercy and purity and peace, those blinded by the darkness will, they'll see your good works. They'll see the beauty and the light of God's love and they'll glorify God. That's a, that's a breathtaking picture. Right? You are light. No, notice there's no distinction in gifting. Right? If you have this set of really public gifts, you're a better light. No, you are light. If you're part of Christ's bride, you're part of this. God has a purpose for you, a plan for you. You can shine. Just like salt needs contact to be effective, light needs to be seen to create contrast. Both pictures 
Both pictures, both examples require proximity. Closeness. Living in the midst of. This is stated so clearly and confrontationally by the great reformer Martin Luther. Listen to what he wrote. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be part of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Luther then says, oh, oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would have ever been spared? Our text this morning is not only meant to be confrontational, you can't avoid that part of this text, but it's also meant, as I've already mentioned, to energize us. This is why God has redeemed us. United to Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we, we are God's agents of mercy and peace. We are God's plan to push back the darkness and bring the light of the gospel into the darkest places. Redeemer, what an opportunity we have what an opportunity we have. And, and guess what? This incredible opportunity, this call by Christ to walk in his way, to live the good life, to bring the light of the gospel into the darkness. Do you realize that there is no outcome to the events of this Tuesday that will change this one bit? No matter what happens, no matter what happens, we are called to the same glorious mission. And to be clear, it is a mission that cannot and will not fail. In fact, look at verse 16 one more time. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, and I think we can add because we know the rest of the story, so that they may and some will. And some will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Brothers and sisters, instead of retreating in fear or being drawn away by things that seem more important or more pressing, let me encourage all of us to courageously move forward, to press in. Let's join arms with each other and with all the power of the resurrected Christ, let's push back the forces of darkness in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our cities. And here's the truly astonishing reality of all of this. We can do this. 
we can do this. We can do this because we belong to a king whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Let me, let me leave you with the encouragement Charles Spurgeon gave his congregation as he preached this same text. This is what Spurgeon said in closing. The master expects, as he has put the pungent influence of his grace into you, that you should be as salt as he has put the burning light of his grace upon you, that you should be as a lamp and scatter light all around. Take good heed of that. It is no saying of mine. It is the saying of him who you call Lord and Master. And then Spurgeon says this. Think of him. Think of him speaking this from those dear lips, which are like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. And instead of seeing my hands lifted up in warning, think of the print of the nails in his hand and let the words come home with force on your souls. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray.